This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Jack. I'm the youth and student pastor here at Seven. Uh, it's great to be able to, uh, to come and share with you. Uh, I wonder, when was the last time you heard really good news? Like, have you ever been maybe praying for uh, a friend or family member who's been struggling to have a child and then you hear that they've given birth safely? Or the news that someone's engaged and that's that person you've been praying to find a partner for years and years? Or maybe your loved one has finally been given an all clear from a disease they've been fighting? Or maybe like last week when I was being a terrible parent, I had my earphones in listening to the cricket and I was getting more and more worried and I finally heard that we made the breakthrough and won one of the Ashes tests. You know, amazing news like that. Because I want to look, and we're going to talk about good news. We're in a series looking at the gospel and what it means to us. And I want to look at a passage today that at first glance may not seem like good news. Uh, especially in our cultural context. But I, I truly believe, and I've found personally, that this is some of the best news you will ever hear. As I said, we're in this mini-series looking at the gospel, and the problem with the word gospel is it's very Christianese. We use it a lot in church. But for something so significant uh, to the Christian life and to Christian practice, it's amazing how often we misunderstand what it means. So rather than me try and explain it, I thought we'd watch a quick video from uh, the Bible Project to unpack a little more what it means. So have a look at the screen. If you know any Christians, or if you happen to be one, you've probably heard the word gospel as a kind of summary of Christian belief, connected to phrases like, God loves you, or Jesus died for your sins. But over time, religious words like gospel can lose their power and meaning by becoming too familiar. So let's take a moment to rediscover what this important word, gospel, meant to the people who wrote the Bible. Gospel translates the Old Testament Hebrew verb, biser, and the noun, besorah. The Greek New Testament equivalent is euangelion, which is a compound word. You means good, and angelion means announcement. All of these words mean good news, but what kind of news? Well, in Hebrew, beser is what we might call national news or a royal announcement. Like when King David hears a messenger beser that his army was victorious in battle. That means he still rules on his throne over the people of Israel. And after David dies, his throne is passed on to Solomon, his son. And when he was inaugurated as king in Jerusalem, a herald spreads the Besorah, that a new ruler is in charge. But after Solomon's death came a bunch of bad news kings whose corruption led their nation into self-destruction. This is why the prophet Isaiah announced the good news that one day the God of Israel would come as the cosmic king to confront all corrupt and violent kingdoms and restore his rule over all nations. And so when Jesus of Nazareth hit the public stage, he continued Isaiah's gospel when he went around announcing the euangelion of God's kingdom. Jesus claimed that God was restoring his reign over his people Israel and over all nations, and he was the one bringing it all about. Now, the euangelion about a new king in charge means a new way of life. Jesus said that living in God's kingdom meant following him by putting down the sword and seeking peace through radical forgiveness and generosity even toward your enemies. His good news required people to make a decision. This is why Jesus took his euangelion to Jerusalem to confront the corrupt and violent kingdoms of his day. 
But he challenged them in a surprising way with the power of God's generous love. As Jesus was being executed by his enemies, he received his crown and was mocked as a fake king. But he displayed true royal authority by forgiving his tormentors. Jesus was the one in charge that day, giving his life for the sins of others. And then, a few days later, everything changed. Jesus rose from the dead as the true king, whose love is stronger than death. He appeared to hundreds of his followers and told them to spread the euangelion, that all authority in heaven on earth now belongs to him. Amazing. And so that's that big picture view of what this gospel, this good news is throughout scripture. And, and different people over the next a few weeks are going to zero in on elements of that good news story which have impacted them. And so the passage I want to read and zero in on this morning is from Mark 8, verses 34 to 38. It says this, And Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel, good news, will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So this passage, it comes at a really significant moment in the books we also call Gospels, written by Matthew, Mark and Luke. And it's after Jesus' ministry has grown, it's gained some traction, Uh, he's got a following, he's performed some of his greatest miracles, feeding thousands of people after a couple of his sermons, and he's been causing quite the stir in his country. And it's a real political melting pot, this tension is high, they're under military occupation, and this religious revival has been sparked on the back of, of one started by John the Baptist. And lots of people were talking about him and speculating about who is this guy, Jesus. And anticipation was rising. And Jesus gathers his disciples together, and he asks them this question. So, who do the people say I am? But most of all, who do you say I am? Who am I? And that's the question at the heart of the gospel, at the heart of this good news story, which Christians live by and tell others. Who is Jesus is the defining question to differentiate between all other religions or philosophies and worldview. And so the disciples answer, they say, some say you're a prophet, some say you're Elijah, raised from the dead, or just a miracle worker. Jesus says, but who do you say? The ones who spent so much time with him, who've seen him in every aspect of life. And, And Peter stands up and declares, we believe you are the Messiah. You're the saviour Israel has been waiting for. But then what follows uh, Peter's amazing statement is one of the most amazing and harshest rebukes. And and in Matthew, it's recorded this way. uh, Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day raised to life. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. 
But he turned, to, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are of a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus essentially says to Peter, he says, yes, I am the hero of the story. I'm the king, the anointed one, the savior you've been waiting for, but, but not in the way you expect. And perhaps not even in the way you want me to be. Because Jesus says this shocking thing. He says that the way to his victory and the way to life is in fact death. And here we hit that unexpected twist. Like, how could that be good news? Like, it doesn't feel very good the first time we hear it. How is that good news? I, I don't like giving up things. I don't like giving up my way of doing things. And so to help us explore this claim, I thought, first of all, it would be helpful to unpack a little our own cultural context and how that shapes our thinking and our response to that outrageous claim. And stick with me because it is relevant. You see, all worldviews and philosophies have to answer the same fundamental questions. No matter where you are in history or the world, they all have to answer questions of origins, meaning, morality and destiny. That's questions of where did we come from? What is the purpose of life? What does it mean to live a good life? And ultimately, what happens at the end of it? And the secular culture we're living in and the Christian worldview that many of us might try and live by have very different answers to those questions around human flourishing. Now, the first and the last might be obvious. So where do we come from? Well, the secular worldview says we're here as a product of random chance. There's no design. There's no creator. There's no ultimate purpose. Whereas the Christian worldview says, no, there is a creator and a designer who made and loves each and every one of us. And where does the story end? Well, the Christian worldview says the story of creation does have an end point. In a, in a time where worldviews will be circular, this, the Christian worldview has a, in the Judeo-Christian worldview has a linear view of life. It has a creation and it has an end point. And the end point of the Christian worldview is that Jesus is going to come back as king. He will renew the whole creation. And ultimately, there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain or suffering. And for all those who choose it, they can live in relationship with him under his rule and reign. So the Bible uses language of, of paradise, of a, of a garden city where there are vacations and creativity and worship, all with God at the centre. And interestingly, the secular narrative does have a similar story. It says we are heading towards a utopia. But that's because the secular narrative and the, the culture we live in has borrowed from the Christian worldview. It was born out of it. And so it's borrowed that idea from the Judeo-Christian story. But the difference is there's no Jesus. Because if there's no Jesus in the story, there's no king to submit to. And if there's no king to submit to, then we get to be our own king and queens. And in the secular narrative, human achievements marked by science and education are believed to be ushering in a utopian future for humanity of ever-increasing progress. Now, at first glance, that sounds great, doesn't it? I can be lord of my own life, and I get to be part of an ever-improving world. Just think iPhones and AI. Isn't it all going to be glorious? Glorious 
However, you might notice some problems with that story. So first problem uh, with that secular narrative, which we live in, and it's like the water we're swimming in for fish. Like we just, we're around it so much, we hardly ever notice it's there. But the first problem of that narrative is there's no hope. There's no hope for us as individuals in the future. It says nothing of what will happen for us at the end of this life. The second problem is it says we can have human flourishing, life to the full, with absolutely no reference to spirituality. I don't have time to unpack this, but there's an increasing evidence, abundance of evidence, this is not the case. See, we are spiritual beings, and I mean that word in a broad sense of spiritual. But we, worship, we all worship something. We all build our lives around something. The question is more around what, what are we worshipping? What are we building our lives around? And the third problem is that that story puts me, and I don't mean me, Jack Saunders, I mean us, individuals, at the centre. It makes me king. It makes us king and queens of the story. And therefore, in a universe without a creator, any ex- no external sense of identity, purpose, or meaning, it all has to come internally. Just think for every, the message from almost every Disney film, what is it? Look inside yourself. Become who you are. Look in inside for a sense of identity. And that is not the Christian story. The Christian story says, no, you get an eternal and a lasting sense of identity, meaning, and purpose from something that will never change or get taken away. Because the problem with us being king is I'm a terrible king. Terrible. Ask my wife. I'm a terrible king. Honestly. And as much as my ego would like to think I'd make a good prime minister, the reality is I would be terrible. Because I'm not as rational as I think I am. I'm more broken than I realize. I'm more of a screw-up than I let on to others. I fail at my New Year's resolutions within days or weeks. I often walk in a room and forget why I'm there. Anyone else? There is no hope. If, if, it, if my sense of identity, purpose, and meaning has to come from within me, that's quite a scary thought. And perhaps, just perhaps, that's why we are seeing a rise in anxiety. Not just as individuals, but as a society, because we've taken away the foundations from which it was built. There is nothing solid under our feet, and it certainly cannot take the weight we are placing on it. But in contrast, the Christian story has a radically different message. And we find in the teachings of Jesus this truth that you and I are incredibly, unbelievably loved. You are created, you are unique, and yes, you have amazing, unbelievable value. But you are not God. You are not God, and you don't need to be. You are never designed to be, because there already is one. And Jesus, who is both God and the ultimate human, not only taught us, but showed us that real human flourishing is discovered by giving your life away, by sacrificing it for others, having a other-centered life, not a self-centered life. As I read before, but it says it in Luke 9, 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, will save it. Jesus' teaching was as radical then as it sounds now, but he preached an upside-down kingdom. And the invitation is this, to live with God at the centre of our lives. 
And what that does, it provides those very things I desperately need to flourish as a human. And of which, when I look inside, I don't have the ability to provide myself. See, it provides hope. It provides a certain hope based on a sovereign, eternal, perfect God who promises a future with him if I would choose it. And it promises an identity that can never change. You see, if God is eternal and he will never change, and if God is love itself and the source of all love, that means I have an identity that can be rooted and secure. See, the the New Testament scriptures talk about an anchor, something that's secure and solid based on who God is. It provides meaning because that means there's meaning to my life because I'm not a random accident. It means I'm unique and created and designed for a purpose. And that purpose, the scriptures say, and Jesus says, is to know God and be known by God. To love God with all my heart, mind, soul and strength. And then to love my neighbour from that place. And it's in contrast to the story of the world, which on the surface promises freedom. But what our culture has done is it's redefined freedom. Freedom can mean I can do whatever I like. But the reality for those that have tested that theory to its end is it really provides bondage. See, it sounds like freedom to not have any external parameters on life and just just to follow your desires and instincts. But that inevitably leads to the destruction of ourselves, not real life. It leads to addictions we can't escape from and or the manipulation or domination of others. But Jesus provided another way to live for the sake of another, not ourselves. And Jesus unpacked this in a number of ways and he he shared a number of parables to describe it. And, And one is in Matthew 13, verse 44. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. A modern equivalent might be like striking gold or discovering oil in your back garden. Again, it doesn't initially sound like good news to give up what you have. But when you're trading it in for something worth so much more, more than you could ever earn, it becomes a joy. David in the Old Testament, a king, uh, described as a man after God's own heart, who ended up himself very wealthy and powerful. But he said this in Psalm 84 verse 10, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. I'd rather be with God as just a servant to be with him than luxury apart from him. And we could look at the story of that there is a rich young ruler in Mark 10 who asks a question, how do I enter eternal life, this new life of the kingdom? And it says Jesus looked at him and loved him, but his encouragement was, go sell everything you have and then come follow me. Actually, there's, there's a better life away from the riches by coming and following me. And guys, for me, this, this played itself out in a number of ways. So I grew up in church. Uh, I had encounters with the Holy Spirit as a teenager in youth group. I would, I'd worship God. Uh, I, would, I would have said I was a Christian, 
in half of my life. The half that my church friends and, and people knew about, and then the other half which God didn't have. I was living on, my, on the fence my, my entire teenage life, really. God had part of my life. And around, I think it was around 17, I, I remember sitting in a, in a youth event and hearing someone preach a simple message on this passage and just realised I had to make a choice. If Jesus really was who he said he was, I realised Christianity was all or nothing. Either he was who he said he was and he was worth everything or it wasn't worth following. And that decision changed my life and it changed my lifestyle. I had to change things about how I live my life. And I decided to go all in for this good news story. And so I did well in school, did quite well in fact, uh, had a place at uni and felt God calling me to take a gap year first. And so I did a DTS with YWAM and it was there God gave me another choice. I had a real sense of calling that actually this good news story I've been telling others. I felt like an invitation from God to, to tell others that story. That there's another way of life that Jesus is inviting them into. And so I made a decision. I was like, okay, God, I'll go, I'll go all in for you. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost. And so I gave up my place at university and started working for my local church. I reckon I got married not long later. And, and we had some decisions to make about how we live our life and what God was calling us to. And we sensed again this was true, this calling to, particularly with the young generation, to share this good news story. And so we committed together to, to go all in for the gospel. And it cost us. It cost us career opportunities. Uh, we had seasons living by faith, trusting God to provide when we had very little money. It had some seasons of going on adventures by faith and trusting God. It ended up with us moving here to Bristol, even when life was comfortable where it was. And guys, I can tell you that was easy as a teenager because it didn't cost that much. And it was relatively easy in my early 20s. But the more now I hit my 30s and my peers and my uh, siblings and those around me start to progress in their careers and you realise the cost of your choice, it starts to dawn on you. And when you have a family and a mortgage and responsibilities, that choice seems to get a little bit harder. But I have the, the privilege of looking at some Christians further down the road than me, who have faithfully given up everything for the gospel, who are retiring, having been missionaries, who have been church leaders, who have given everything for the gospel in the most hardest of circumstances and are still running after him. And I know it was worth it. And I realise it's too late to go back on that choice now. And guys, we had other choices. Uh, when our daughter was sick, our first daughter, uh, and passed away at five days old, we had a choice. We had a choice to believe, is this really still good news when life doesn't go to plan? Does this good news apply to me or does it apply to my children as well? So this good news story doesn't promise me a life the way I want it. It doesn't promise me any certain amount of days. But it does promise something better. Relationship with a creator. An eternity with him. A hope, purpose, meaning and a future. And so we had a choice. We had a choice to turn from God or turn to him and to believe it's still good news. And it was like we're walking this narrow path and every now and again there's these offshoots just to make life a little bit easier. And every now and again I think Jesus comes back to us and just says, which, which one do you want to choose? Yeah, that way might be a bit easier, but I'm giving you an invitation to this way of life. And that's what it feels like for me sometimes. And God just reminds me of the choices I've made 
And the declarations of moments I've gone, God, I'm all in for this story. I'm all in for this message. And he's like, okay, are you still in for this? This is what it could look like. But guys, I was challenged when I was uh, thinking about this. Uh, when I was, I think I was about 17 at Soul Survivor, and somebody uh, stood up and shared something about the persecuted church. And it, something about uh, this guy called Eddie Lyle, he heads up a charity called Open Doors, which was started by someone called Brother Andrew, you may know. And it, and it really challenged me, because I'd never heard the stories of Christians who would give their life for the gospel. But I wonder if you can put that map up on the screen. And this is something called the World Watch List map that Open Doors put together. Uh, and you can see coded um, is the top countries where it's hardest to be a Christian in the world today. And so the ones in red, North Korea is almost always number one. Uh, a lot of Middle Eastern countries uh, where it's, you risk your life to follow Jesus. And sadly, the truth is, throughout history and around the world today, thousands and thousands of our brothers and sisters who are Christians face persecution every single day. They risk death, they uh, risk uh, imprisonment, they risk being captured or abducted simply for following this good news message. And some of their stories are inspiring. I remember hearing about an Iranian pastor when asked what he wanted the church in the West to pray for, and he said, don't pray that the persecution stops. Just pray that we'll be faithful. This is from a Syrian pastor. He said, the church is a source of joy because Jesus stayed on the cross and Syria is on the cross awaiting our day to be resurrected. No one in our society has this joy except the church. We are not passing through anything our Lord did not pass through himself and triumph over. Being persecuted recently in Syria is nothing. We have been persecuted for centuries and it does not hurt the church but serves it. That is a very different perspective from my Western perspective. And I don't know if we even have the right to talk about this passage of giving up everything, denying ourselves, risking our lives to follow the gospel, because it doesn't cost us that much. It doesn't cost me to stand up on this stage and preach the gospel and talk about the good news. Whereas for these guys, that's reality every day that they wake up in, but they still serve faithfully. And it just, for me, it just inspires me for those Christians around the world that suffer for this gospel, but they are so convinced it is such a gift and it's so worth giving everything up for that they could not be persuaded to change. And so, guys, my encouragement for us today is just to remind ourselves, and maybe if we've grown up in church, we, we take it for granted. I know I did for so long. This is an amazing good news story that we get to live part of. And so I just wonder, maybe if, if in small ways, is Jesus giving us an invitation to his way of life today? And maybe there's ways we've just drifted. Maybe we're on that path and it just got really difficult. And that other little one, it was still kind of on the path, but it just looked a little bit easier. But we know actually there's an invitation of Jesus to something more. Maybe that's a path of comfort and a career. Maybe, it's, uh, maybe there's an area of life God's calling you to take a risk and it just felt too much in the moment. Maybe there is a lifestyle choice you, you believe isn't right, but you've just been walking down that path. I don't know what it is for you, but I wonder if there is a challenge, but it's an invitation. You see, God is a good father. He's always inviting us into the life that's better and richer and deeper. Our flesh doesn't always like it, but it is the better life. And so I guess that's our encouragement. As we're just going to head into a time of prayer and maybe uh, Joel and Carl come up to play. I'm just going to pray and ask God to speak.
and see where it is he's calling us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. Maybe maybe if you want to close your eyes, I invite you, hold your hands out if it's helpful, and we'll just pray. Jesus, Father God, Holy Spirit, we invite you. I thank you, you give us this invitation to a rich and a full life of abundance. An other-centered, not a self-centered life. But God, it's really, really hard. And my flesh doesn't want to. So I just pray for the gift of faith right now, to trust your word, to trust you, that you have a life, better life ahead of us. And Holy Spirit, we invite you just to challenge us in any way, big or small, that we've, we've lost sight, that we've followed the ways of the world and not your ways. May you just come and speak. And for those of us that don't even know that foundational truth, that we are loved and valuable and beloved of God, would you just speak that as the foundation that above all, you chase us and you pursue us and we're your treasure. Yeah, we say, come on, Holy Spirit.